first scripture reading is going to be in Numbers. I'm going to summarize Numbers 22 through 24. That's on page 130. And then we're going to flip to chapter 31 of Numbers, verses 16, uh, 13 through 16. You know the story of Balaam. You know it well. I'm sure you can tell the story yourself. Balaam uh, is being petitioned by the king of Moab, Balak, to come and curse Israel and Balaam looks like a pretty decent fellow. He says, no, no, I can only do what Yahweh tells me to do. Finally, he's prevailed upon, it looks like, and he goes, and on his way to go curse Israel, the angel of Yahweh stops him dead in his tracks and puts the fear of God into him, so to speak. And that was all about the donkey and everything. You remember the story about the mule. It's always funny. He speaks to the mule. I'm just going, what? what? Anyways. He goes, he, pray, he blesses Israel four times. Every time he keeps telling Balak, no, I cannot curse him. I can only do what Yahweh says. And so he blesses Israel. And so it looks like Balaam was actually a decent chap. It's not till sometime later, chapter 31, chapter 31, verses 13 through 16, you find out that was not the case. As Israel stays around the Midianites for a while, they are then attracted to the women of Midian. And the women are attracted to them, and then there's all these liaisons, which almost always also includes pagan worship. God reacts to this compromise, and he brings judgment upon Israel. Shame on them for this sexual promiscuity. And then he tells Israel, I want you to wipe out this group of Midianites. And so they do so. Except... For the women. Sorry, this is all down around. I know it's Mother's Day, but hang in with me. This has nothing to do with Mother's Day. So then you come to chapter 31, verse 13. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you... Let all the women live. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against Yahweh in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam was not a good guy. And I'll explain more of this when we get into the sermon, but he was not a good guy after all. He counseled a certain direction that was intended to sabotage Israel. So he could gain power and wealth. Well, now we turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. We're going to start uh, in verse 13. It's on page 1019. For those of you who are visiting, we're, just, we're doing a series through First and 2 Peter. Memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. If you came looking for a Mother's Day sermon, I don't do Mother's Day sermons. I don't do Father's Day sermons. Usually those are... You know, just I just don't do those. And so we're just keeping right on through here. But we will remember Mother's Day when we get to the prayer after communion. And so 1 Peter chapter 2. We've already dealt with the first part of chapter 2. There's pillagers and, and uh, uh, there are pillagers and banditos who are harming the church, and Peter is concerned about them. So 1 Peter 2, or sorry, sorry, 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, middle of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. 
forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than, for, than after, having know, after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment to deliver, deliver to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What I've summarized for you, what I've read for you is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Again, Lord, as we said last week, thank you. Thank you for your correcting, directing word. And so may the hearts of all of us be amended for our good and your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Just quickly, you may wonder why I don't normally do Mother's Day sermons or Father's Day sermons and so forth. Mother's Day and Father's Day is not always a happy time for several people, many people. There's abuse that's gone on. There are deserting parents that have happened in your in lives. There are motherless, I mean, there are childless women. There are, I just, you just pile it on. It's not always a happy day. And so I've chosen long ago, when I first got ordained, never to do a Mother's Day or Father's Day special event. Okay, so if you want to know why. So here we are in Second Peter. I want you to remember that either Peter is using Jude or Jude is using 2 Peter 2. Either way, it doesn't matter because as it's happening, it's by the direction of our Lord Jesus Christ where Jude and 2 Peter 2 have joined forces. And that means, of one thing it means, is that Jesus cares so passionately, our Lord Jesus cares so passionately about what these pillagers and these uh, predators are doing in his church, that he wants it stated almost verbatim twice by two different writers. That tells you this is not child's play. This is serious business, as we would say in Oklahoma. But also, our Lord Jesus has directed Jude and 2 Peter 2 to join forces because they are both addressing the same kinds of predators and pillagers. And so this morning, we will work our way through 2 Peter 2, 13-22, which tells us quite a bit about the zombies out there spreading the disease, so to speak, as Peter informs us more specifically of what they do. And what they do is all about sensuality. I was delighted at a care group last Sunday night that I I mentioned how sensuality is not just sexual, that there's other aspects of sensuality, and I was delighted to hear someone in the care group say, wow, I never thought about that before, but that was really helpful. And today you're going to get a full dose of that. Sensuality, the sensuality of avarice, the sensuality of enslavement, the sensuality of exploitation, and the sensuality of autonomy. 
Now, you could tease these out into smaller groups if you want, but I've given you four larger categories, and that's what I'm going to stick with. And so the sensuality of avarice, A-V-A-R-I-C-E. By the way, though, some of my notes are on the back of your worship guide. So one of the false teachers, the old teacher's chief characteristics is greed, avarice, greed. These old teachers are all about accumulating stuff. It could be anything from wealth to toys to power to sexual dominations to fame. But they're all about accumulation of stuff. Avarice and greed are not only and solely referring to money, though it all does go together, oddly enough. And so clear back up in verse 3, and I do hope you have your Bibles open to follow along. Clear back up in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Thus, this vice runs, this vice of avarice runs throughout 2 Peter 2. Thus, giving us a huge red flag warning. This is important. Look down at verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Notice it's not enough that their desires and drives lean them toward avarice. No, they have thrown themselves completely into that direction. Their hearts trained in greed. Now, most of you know that the New Testament was written in Greek, and so the Greek word lying behind trained is the Greek word where we get gymnasium from. Trained. Wow. Trained as at an Olympic gymnasium. They have perspired. They have practiced. They have persisted in learning how to get better and better and more efficient at greed. Trained in greed. And so as an illustration, Peter runs straight to Balaam. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor. As we heard back, thinking back over Numbers 22 through 24, it sounded like Balaam had all the earmarks of being a decent fellow on the surface. I mean, he even told the Midianite king's entourage that had come to snag him and get him to to curse Israel. He even told them in Numbers 22, verse 18, he says, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of Yahweh, my God, do less or more. He looks like a really decent fellow, like somebody you might want to actually live next door to you, except he talks to donkeys, but that's a different story. He even knows the personal covenantal name of God. And he seems to submit to him all along. Then when we get further over in Numbers 31, we, we realize his heart was not really with Yahweh. His heart was on his own esteem. His heart was on his own acclaim. His heart was on what he could get. How do you know? Because think of it. He convinced the Moabite leaders to exploit their women. He convinced the Moabite leaders to use their women as sexual weapons to sabotage God's people. Now, shame on God's people for caving into that. And God does spank their hand, or actually does more than that. But He does get them for it. He's not a good guy. He was... Convincing the leaders to sex traffic 
the women of Moab. Does anybody not go, shame? He's not a good guy. And he did it all for his own benefit. I don't know about you, but that tells me some very nasty things about Balaam. And that therefore causes you to go back and read the earlier part about Balaam and Balaam and Numbers 22 through 24 and to reevaluate Balaam's earlier story, and you realize, no, he really wanted the money. In the words of our Lord Jesus to one of the seven churches in Revelation 2, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. They did this all so they could accumulate. And so these old teachers, in a similar manner, are forsaking the right way and have gone astray, and they are near, uh, and uh, their new direction is akin to Balaam's transgression and the prophet's madness. This is the sensuality they use, the sensuality of avarice. They actually use this sensuality to lure others so that many follow their sensuality, verse 2. And so attached to the sensuality of avarice is the sensuality of enslavement. Now, sensuality can include sexual, the sexual. Look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Like a hungry man, they pour over pornography and other eye candy to fill their appetite. By the way, pornography is not a 20th and 21st century invention. Some of you may remember the stories about the uh, archaeological digs in uh, Pompeii. Remember Pompeii, Vesuvius, blew all those ashes there. And as they were going through excavating, they had to put sheets up over the walls where the pictures were because they were so pornographic that it was distracting to the workers. That was 70 A.D. That's not a new invention. But these folks have eyes in, that, are, that are, are full of adult, adult, adultery. Sorry. Too much speed coming out of my mouth there. Sorry. Like a starving woman, they look for the next flirtatious fling to fill the void in their heart. As the sage says in Proverbs, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. And so then in verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel, to celebrate the party, to, to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Here these old teachers, you see, throw off God's restraints and they cast aside God's good way. What Peter will go on to say in the last couple of verses of chapter 2. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Having cast off God's restraint, they then pursue their own sensual ways and become enslaved. The sensuality of enslavement. They become enslaved, but lo and behold, they love it. They love being enslaved. In fact, they, they become enslaved and they call it freedom. 
They become enslaved and they call it freedom. So those, some of you who remember George Michael's song, Freedom, that should be coming to your head because I watched it this week because I couldn't help but think about it as I was reading these verses. They promise them freedom, verse 19, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. They call it freedom. I'm free to do what I want to do. You're going to judge me? You're a legalist. They call it freedom. They present it as freedom. They sell it as freedom. But it's all about enslavement. And they're happy, pleased as purple punch to be enslaved. This is the self-inflicted enslavement. And it necessarily colors the ways their ways of acting, and their ways of engaging with others. And so the sensuality of enslavement is wrapped about by the sensuality of exploitation. The sensuality of enslavement is wrapped about by the sensuality of exploitation. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to restrain my illustrations because I have a lot of history in this area and dealing with people, and I'm trying to trim it down so we don't spend four hours on these illustrations of exploitation. But you probably have experiences with this. Notice, first off, verse 13, they revel in their deceptions. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, this is describing their exploitive action. Think about it. Ask the question, why would you feast with someone you are deceiving? Well, you know why. It's to get more out of them. To bilk them, to keep them, to keep the line open for more and more. I remember a pyramid scheme. I won't mention it to you. I won't mention the name. But I remember back in the 1980s, one of those guys that had bought into that pyramid scheme wanted to become my friend. Says, Mike, I want to be your friends. I want to be your friends. And then he laid out about a week later his pyramid scheme that he wanted me to buy into. And I said to him, I said, No, I'm not going to buy into your pyramid scheme. Oh, well, I'm sorry then. I've always been taught that successful people hang out with successful people. I'm not your friend. Wowzers. Or the guy that took me to lunch one time to sell the same pyramid scheme about 10 years later and didn't tell me he was going to try to sell me his pyramid scheme. He took me to lunch saying, I want to be your friend. I should learn from the first one, right? And we get there. He picks me up and takes me. So now I'm a captive. He takes me in. We're eating. It's a great lunch. It's wonderful. He's all friendly and charming. And then he says, now, I would like to tell you about my business. Oh, brother. And he lays out his pyramid scheme that he's a part of. And you need to buy into it so you'd be successful like me. No, I won't do that. Sure's a long walk home, bud. He didn't say that. I mean, we have experience of that. Why do you eat with someone you're deceiving so you can keep on deceiving them and keep on milking them and bilking them for what they have? And this is what they would do. And they do this by enticing, Peter goes on to say, by enticing unsteady souls. In fact, that's what they look for. And the unsteadiness that they're looking for, specifically the soul, is the kind of unsteadiness that can be attracted to their promise of freedom. The kind of soul that can be attracted to their promise of freedom. Go back and look at verse 18 and 19. 
Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, they promise them freedom. They themselves are slaves of corruption. I want you to think about verse 18 for a moment. In the context of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, 1 Peter is dealing with the problem of suffering, right? We talked about that with 1 Peter, suffering. Here are these Christians, and they will suffer, Peter says. And they will suffer from their neighborhood. They will suffer from their country club. They will suffer from their families. Always putting pressure on them. And after a while, you get, you get weary trying to escape those who are putting that pressure on you, trying to escape that pressure. It, it's wearing. It grinds you down. And so here come 2 Peter 2. Here come these false teachers that say, you're an idiot for, for having all these, the, the suffering. You're following a too rigid form of Christianity. Look, I've got freedom. We can just go along and live like they do, and it will relieve all the pressure because really just Jesus loves what you're just doing on the inside. doesn't matter what's on the outside or whatever they said. They used freedom to entice them, and it would have been really enticing to get rid of the pressure in their families and their social networks. It was a real temptation. So they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. The predators always look for an easy mark. They manipulate even the gatekeepers to get to their prey. Leaders, parents, whoever, to get to their prey. They schmooze and beguile on the one hand if it works. If it doesn't work, then they verbally and emotionally bully and bludgeon to get their way. But often their sinister, most sinister work is done in hiddenness outside of the eyesight and the earshot of witnesses. My friends, this is one reason why I think ministry safe, sorry to plug, but here it is, I think ministry safe is so hugely important. Especially when you get to the section on grooming. And I found that some who have been sexually abused, when they finally get to that point, if they can make it through the, up to that point, when they finally get to that point, they breathe a sigh of relief. Not all of them, because it's, there's lots of grief there. But some of them breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, I wasn't crazy. That was the ploy used on me. It's extremely important. We want to be pursuing ministry safe and all of that. So they lay out how the predator's exploitation of others goes down that path, using shame or liberty, either one, as a crowbar to pry you loose from right and wrong. But further, dear friends, many of the sensually exploitive traits of these old teachers that they exercise also follow the trademarks of domestic abusers. It's amazing. They feel entitled to what they are after. I have a right to this. They strive to dominate others using every tactic in the book they can get there. They use threats and punishment to get compliance. But oddly enough, they often see themselves as victims. 
and then shift the blame onto others. Well, the reason why I hit you is because you're such an evil person or something. I've watched them use and misuse, actually, scriptures to beat others into submission. And they do what's called gaslighting. What's gaslighting? Well, at least the part I'm thinking of is that they change the remembered stories, causing the abused to question their recollections. No, I didn't say that. No, no, you misunderstood me. I, did, I never said that. Here's what I actually said. And after a while, the oppressed, the abuser begins to go, am I crazy? Am I crazy? They're really crafty at that. And so these old teachers pursue the sensuality of exploitation because they are awash in the sensuality of autonomy. They're awash in the sensuality of autonomy. As I pointed out last week, Peter describes the old teachers' lawless deeds, verse 8. These old teachers, these false teachers, have thrown throw off the restraints of God's law to pursue their own course. In fact, Peter himself will call them in chapter 3, verse 17, lawless people. And so having thrown off the restraints of God's law, they must follow some standard. Everyone has a rule of infallibility. Everyone. And so you have to ask, what's their north star then? What's that magnetic pole that moves their moral compass? And Peter tells you, it's back in verse 10, the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. The lust of defiling passion and despising authority. They are a law. They are their own authority. They are a law unto themselves. That's what autonomous means. Auto, self, nomus. Law, a law to themselves. And in their autonomous overreach, they are brazenly rebellious and insubordinate, bold and willful, Peter says. This is why they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime, verse 13. This is why they are insatiable for sin, verse 14. This is why they train their hearts in greed, verse 14. This is why they forsake the right way and have gone astray, verse 15. This is why they speak loud boasts of folly and entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They must, they, they, they just know, I'm putting quotation marks around no, they just know that they are entitled. They just know that they are right in the course they pursue. This autonomy shows up in a couple of different ways. Sometimes in preachers, ministers, public speakers. On the one hand, many will promote grace. I actually saw this happen a few years back. Many will promote grace to the exclusion of God's law. Even to the point as they're preaching through Romans, and they preach through Romans 6, they stop and will not preach the last part of Romans 6 that talks about grace makes us slaves of righteousness. You would not even touch it. And nobody said diddly about it. And as soon as there's pushback on that preacher, he immediately goes onto podcasts and YouTubes and his church website and says, I'm being persecuted, y'all! By those legalists, those Pharisees! And then you find out the whole time he's saying that, he's committing adultery with one of his parishioners. 
or on the other hand it comes out. Where they will stifle those around them with the feelings of shame and guilt. You just can't be good enough. Beating them down, often accusing them of not being Christians because they don't do everything the right way, which usually means my way. So all of this, while they are forcing submission, domineering over those under their charge and beating it into people, they have been gripped and grabbed by the sensuality of autonomy. Both make themselves untouchables by the normal, healthy lines of accountability and answerability. They will not submit to anyone else. They are a law unto themselves. The sensuality of autonomy. Therefore, Peter drives home their destination. That their destination is their own doing. Their path is their own self-guided path that leads to self-destruction. It's down in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And so there's the end of chapter 2. I saw three of you go like this. It's a dark depiction, just like we talked about last week. It's a dark depiction. And you have to ask, why in the world is this here? Why this dark depiction? There's good news behind this dark depiction. This dark depiction describing what the old teachers are doing is meant to accomplish a few things. It's meant first to warn the faithful. To warn the faithful and provide us a defense against this sensuality. If we know that this is the sensuality they do, then we pay attention to those things. And we don't, and we're not shocked, we're not caught off guard. We actually have a defense set up. Why is that defense so important? Because Jesus loves his people. So much he says, Look, I'm warning you that this is coming, that these people will do these things. Pay attention. You parents did this at least once with your kids, didn't you? You know, if you run out there in the street, you're going to get flattened like a pancake, Joe. Right? No, don't go out of the street. Was that because you hate that child? Was that because you hated that child? Thank you. Was it because you loved that child? Good news. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you very much. But also this dark depiction is intended to help those, to help any who have begun being infected by the viral infection of the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. To help those who are beginning to see that maybe, yeah, they're being used, they're being exploited. And to run, to run into God's sheltering arms, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who begin to see they've been being exploited and used. Turning to the Lord and then also saying, and I need help in this situation. And running to others who will help them. I debated all the last three days, whether to use this illustration or not, 
but I'm going to use it. And I'm changing the names to protect the guilty and the innocent. Because this is very close to home. Auntie May has an addiction. She's had this addiction for decades. In her first marriage, she stole from her husband all the time. That's why he ended up divorcing her. But the only reason is why he divorced her. And she pursued and continues this addiction. And finally, she moves close to her sister, Angelina. Everybody likes to say Angelina, Jolie, so I'll just use Angelina. She moves close to her sister, Angelina. And when Angelina's not looking, she starts stealing her jewelry, her expensive stuff, to go pawn it, to go keep her addiction going. And then, here's the worst part. She comes in, and she begins to manipulate Angelina. You know, if you really loved me, you'd go ahead and give me that $10,000. If you really loved me, you wouldn't say that I'm sinning or that I'm wrong. What you would do is you would just go ahead and go along with me, and you would help support me. And Angelina realized she was being taken advantage of, but she didn't know what to do. This is her sister for crying out loud. She's, her heart's breaking. What do I do? Finally, after years of this, of being taken advantage of, of being built like this, she finally realizes, I need help. She runs to the Lord for help, and then she runs to some who can actually hold her accountable, accountable not in a bad way, but actually give her backbone and help her with Auntie May. Now Angelina is really free. Angelina now says to Auntie May, no, I will not give you the money because I will not fund your self-destruction. I love you too much to destroy you. And if I give you that money, it will be part of your destruction. I love you. No, you don't. If you love me, you would do what I want. Manipulation strings. And that's why this dark depiction is here. It's to help us. Maybe we've been enticed. Maybe we're being used by someone to realize. We need to run to the Lord and say, help. And then run to those who really care, who really do care, and say, help me in this exploitation. It's to help us to become aware so we can seek help. Finally, this dark depiction is putting the alt-teachers on notice. What you are doing is crystal clear, Peter is saying. And so now you have a choice. Like Balaam had a choice. When the, when the Lord used that speechless donkey and spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness, Balaam had a choice right then. He had a choice. And so if you continue in your perversion, your end will end up being Balaam's end. But if you repent and turn back to the one for whom, from whom comes grace and peace, you will find God's health-giving remedy. Turn! That's part of what this dark depiction is meant to do. And so, dear friends, as I said at the end of last week's sermon, I say it again, stick to the apostles and prophets and they will stick you to Jesus. And that's a good place to be. And that's where Peter will end this letter when he says in the last two verses, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people. So lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. 
Amen. Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you love us. Lord Jesus, you love us so much that sometimes you have to knock sense into our heads. Thank you for 2 Peter 2. Thank you for how you, you are in this dark depiction. You are aiding us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to, to set up the defenses, the right and proper defenses against false teachers. But we, I pray, Lord, for any who find themselves being exploited right now, that they would, they would not deny it. They would not lie to themselves, but they would realize it and they would run to you and they would run to those who can actually help them out of the exploitation. And I pray for any ministers right now, even in our own denomination, who are exploiting others. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would stop them dead in their tracks. That you would bring them to their knees in repentance. And Lord, I pray for any who are exploiting anywhere, that they would hear this and it would turn to good news in their hearts. They would come to you. All we ask together in Jesus' name, amen.